Energy has been the worst performing sector over the past five years by a pretty wide margin. And over the past 10 years, the energy sector has also decreased meaningfully in weight across the broader market indices, and it now makes up just under 3% of the S&P 500. Challenging fundamentals and ESG headwinds have both contributed to the decline, but we're finally starting to see some renewed interest in the space. Energy was the best performing sector in 2021, and many analysts are optimistic heading into 2022, especially given the outlook for elevated inflation and a strong demand backdrop as the world hopefully continues to reopen. But given the big moves this year, has all the juice already been squeezed? And how should we think about investing across the market cap continuum? Here to break down the opportunity set and help us dive deeper into the energy trade is Eric Chinoweth, Senior Research Analyst at Scout Investments, who works on their mid-cap equity team. This is Markets in Focus from Carillon Tower Advisors. I'm your host, Matt Orton. Join me and my colleagues as we discuss the latest trends and developments driving the markets. Visit us at marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional episodes and insights. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I think a good place to start might be looking at the drivers of energy outperformance in 2021. You know, after years of pretty massive underperformance, we saw a sharp change over the last 12 months. Maybe you can break down um, what you think is responsible for this. And do you think these drivers are sustainable? Great. To understand the, the outperformance in 2021, you have to, to first kind of go back and appreciate what took place in 2020 and, and what a truly horrible year that was in contrast with this year. And when you started 2020, the year started out looking pretty normal. Oil was in the 60s. The companies were kind of all doing their status quo. One of the things we noticed, though, was that inventory levels, both for crude oil and, and refined products, were elevated versus historical levels. And, and that can sometimes pose a risk, especially if uh, demand doesn't live up to expectations. And as I think we all know, as the year progressed into March, demand certainly did not live up to expectations. Uh, as COVID fears gripped the world and we had lockdowns and, and travel bans. Uh, and that all led to a, a very unprecedented thing to happen. And that was in April of 2020, the uh, WTI crude oil future price turned negative for the first time ever. And I think if you have to, to point to a, a spot in time, that's, that's the big wake-up call. OPEC had been haggling amongst itself. Russia and the Saudis were not getting along particularly well. U.S. oil and gas producers were still kind of thinking they should they should grow production at, at fairly reasonable rates every year. And when they got hit with that negative price, everything changed. The OPEC cartel came together in a way I've never seen. Uh, the Saudis and the Russians have, have been working together ever since then. And the U.S. Uh, oil and gas companies really, really uh, came down and, and looked at what, what was happening with them and, and their, balance, their balance sheets and their business models. And they slashed production, they shut in production, they cut spending down to the bone and uh, began to really, uh, really look at what they need to do to, to sustain themselves going forward. And 
on top of all this, there are some some fairly unprecedented market uh, currents, and one of those was the ESG movement, and in particular the divestment movement. And you'll probably remember seeing in the headlines in the summer and the fall of last year, probably more than we had seen them in the past, uh, pension plans and endowments and sovereign wealth funds all announcing that they were going to exit investing in oil and gas and, and conventional energy altogether. And they did that fairly aggressively heading into the fall of last year, uh, even as the share prices were, were already very depressed from, from what had happened with COVID and the negative, negative oil price outcome earlier in the year. And then, to add one more log to the fire, I guess, to your points on, on the introduction there, the, the U.S. oil and gas industry, they had given some pretty terrible returns to shareholders for, for quite a long time. So those who had sat around and, and waited all these years were facing some fairly steep unrealized losses in the fall. And a lot of those unrealized losses became realized. They, they sold out. And that plus the ESG pressure led to a very, very, you know, some of the most negative sentiment that I've ever seen in the space. And that all kind of came to a head in October. And then one weekend in November, we had what a lot of people recall as Vaccine Monday. And the markets kind of eased up and realized that, that maybe there would be a light at the end of the tunnel for covid that really ushered in a lot of the fundamentals that we've been able to to see play out in 2021, from very low stock prices to slowly grinding improvements in demand that have all helped these companies see their share prices higher this year. Perfect. And maybe just to, to dive into that a little bit. So when you look at what some of the tailwinds could be for these companies, do you think having elevated oil prices is going to be necessary? Or, or do you think kind of the deleveraging and cleaning up of corporate balance sheets might be helpful enough as long as we stay at a moderate level of energy prices? That's a good question. I think the, the growing consensus is that oil prices in the 60 to 80 range would be very welcome. And when I look at the valuations, that, that seems to ring true. The companies, I think, have now fully embraced the discipline that they were forced to embrace in 2020. That means cleaner balance sheets and sustaining cleaner balance sheets. And if you do that and you drill far less than you did in the past, an oil price in the 60 to 80 range leads to very attractive free cash flow yields on the current prices of where they trade, which is quite a bit higher than where they traded a year ago. But you still see very, very healthy free cash flow yields that should attract and, and keep investors interested in the companies. Okay, that's definitely some helpful context. And then maybe one other point that you'd mentioned before was that of the divestment movement and some of the ESG concerns. And, and obviously ESG is a growing focus of a lot of professional investors and individuals going forward. And what do you think the impact of increased ESG focus might be going forward, especially if there's continued divestment? You know, you've heard some folks like Larry Fink already speculating that we're going to need to have a, a bad bank structure as energy companies spin off some assets. Uh, do, do you think this is longer term down the future? Could it impact returns going forward? Or do you think um, energy can weather that storm? I think the industry's always um, upheld a long list of environmental standards. But, but what the ESG movement's done is added 
CO2 and methane to that list. And while that might sound like just two two extra gases to add to a, a long list of pollutants that they've always thought about, they have a large impact, uh, a large financial impact, and a very big impact on how they need to behave going forward. It's clearly going to require the industry to change on a number of different fronts. You noted the potential to lose access to, to credit or equity markets or to have reduced access. That's something now that, that management teams and boardrooms have to think about. And on the, on the same note, investors need to factor that in to how much they're willing to, to pay for these companies. And I think the other thing that, that's going to happen, you know, some companies definitely need to sell assets. Other companies have to, to have less investment in their upstream assets. But all of them are going to have to have more investment in various mitigation strategies to deal with methane. And that's something, methane something they can deal with sooner than later. And then eventually they're going to chip away at CO2 and we'll see. It's going to be a foot race, I think, to your point. It's going to be a foot race to see if the industry can chip away at CO2 faster than, than the regulations require them to do it or if the regulations come in more quickly and, and, and force them more into the, the asset sale camp sooner. Right. And so when you talk about kind of the investment that it's going to take, is this already being factored in by investors? Is, are there potential opportunities and companies that might deal with some of the, the items that are needed for investment in these mitigation strategies? I mean, how do you look at the opportunity set? So we think it's pretty large. And, and the short answer is yes, it's happening literally right now. Today, uh, I read about a project in Australia that uh, was greenlit, and there's some press releases out there you can read about it, that's going to sequester about 1.7 million tons of CO2 underground on an existing conventional uh, oil and gas site. Um, so, so those projects are happening, but, but it's going to have to be much bigger than that. And I think when you look out you know, five, 10 years, you can see an industry shaping up that could be, you know, in five years, a $50 billion industry, maybe a $100 billion industry in 10 years. So there's there's certainly a lot of potential there. And I think it really has come on radars just in the last year or so. And there are plenty of investment opportunities out there. And I think it's, it's still very early days on who ends up winning in that space. All right. And hopefully some of that investment might help ease some of the pressures on, on the divestment side too that we've seen pick up. And maybe expanding uh, on this part of the conversation, when you look at opportunities across the broad investment landscape for energy companies, um, where where are you finding some of the best opportunities as we head into 2022? Sure. So I think it's going to touch a lot of different industries. And our team sees that pretty much everywhere. Within oil and gas, there are some companies doing very creative things with carbon dioxide capture and actually reinjecting that to produce more oil in a way that might actually, you know, lead to a, a negative CO2 barrel, as it were. You know, this is still very early innings, but you see things like that, and, and that's that's hopeful for the for the industry. I think as you branch out, you know, all across, you know, the industrials, whether you, you look at chemicals or cement or any sort of manufacturing, there, there's a lot of work being done to kind of compound and reduce your carbon footprint. One of the really interesting areas that we've been involved with is in renewable diesel. And 
you've heard about ethanol. That's something that people are familiar with. But with renewable diesel, you can actually use things like use cooking oil. Now, there are companies that have giant uh, fleets of trucks that collect the cooking oil from fast food restaurants all over the country and are, are processing that into a diesel fuel that's actually incredibly clean burning and is a negative CO2 fuel. So there's big opportunities in places like that because that, that has a feedback loop. If you start to clean up the fleet that hauls the used cooking oil, and whether it's running electric or running on, on its own diesel, its own renewable diesel, you can start to compound the CO2 emissions cuts throughout your ecosystem, and you get some pretty impressive reductions in your CO2 footprint. So there are a lot of places to invest out there. And I think we'll see you know these little uh, incremental gains start to compound and add up over time. And there are some of these investment opportunities, and as you look across the market capitalization range, you know, renewable diesel might might be a pretty niche market. So is that more of a small cap, a micro cap investment type opportunity? I guess how how do you break down maybe the your preferred areas to invest in energy across the capitalization range? Obviously, as a mid-cap manager, you know, you're you're very familiar with the mid-cap space, but you know, maybe you can help our listeners think about or contextualize the different sorts of opportunities you might have across the range of cap. Sure. In the case of renewable diesel, that's actually a mid-cap company now. So that's an exciting, exciting market. I think broadly speaking, and if we look at oil and gas in particular, where there's going to be a lot of action, there's just too many small companies. Even after the rallies and the share prices, there's just too many small companies. And, and the way the industry works, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense anymore like it used to. So there needs to be a lot of consolidation Either they need to consolidate together or, or sell out to, to a larger player. The challenge with that is when you look at the very large energy companies today, you know the largest integrated companies, they're getting the most pressure right now from their shareholders on their scope two and scope three emissions, which are the indirect emissions that they have a, a harder time influencing. Really, the only way to change your scope three emissions and, and then some of your scope two emissions quickly is, is to divest, to sell assets, uh, to sell your up, some of your upstream assets that might be your biggest offenders on the pollution side. They're likely to be sellers as well. So that doesn't leave a lot of buyers. You might think there's private equity firms or someone out there, but private equities, you know, they report largely to endowments and, and foundations and pension plans who have very strong ESG mandates. And frankly, from what it looks like a lot of the private equity money wants to exit the space as well. So, you know, you have a lot of sellers, a lot of consolidation needs, but not a lot of buyers. I think that that for now anyway, points an arrow at, at you know, middle and larger middle size companies to roll these opportunities up over time, assuming it all makes sense, both economically and, and operationally. And you've seen a lot of that in the last year. You've seen a lot of that happen and the prices have been fairly compelling to very compelling. You see a lot of no premium deals to where they trade in the market. And, you know, a lot of the deals that take place that are their asset sales are very, very attractive free cash flow yields. You know, we saw some, you know, in the last year that were over 20% free cash flow yields where they were sold from, you know, major integrated companies to mid cap companies. So, you know, this is all going to work itself out over time, I think, and, and lead to a much leaner and smaller industry and provide some opportunities to those companies that can that have the skill set to operate and integrate well. 
makes a ton of sense. And, and you know, I also want to touch on the the I word inflation because I think it is relevant to the discussion because I think one of the the theses you hear thrown around in the general market prognostication is we see increased inflation that energy could be or, or you know historically speaking tends to outperform in these sorts of environments and I'm curious to get your thoughts given your long tenure in the energy sector do you think that's appropriate and you know are there any type of historical analogs we can draw to the environment we're in now, or is it really truly unique as you're assessing investment opportunities? That's a great question. I'm going to go roundabout on you, but come back to it. I think what this reminds me most of, what we've seen right now, reminds me a lot of 2008 and 9. And the quick answer to that is in the summer of 2008, everything looked great. The world was consuming a little over 88 million barrels a day of oil. And then Lehman hit and in October in just one month. We went down to 80 million barrels a day. So you had a 10% contraction in demand. You know, not quite as bad as what we had with COVID, but very similar. You know, the industry went through the same process that we saw now where they were slashing and burning costs and spending. And then when demand finally came back in 2009, you saw the very sharp market reactions like you saw this year. You know, these kind of some of the smaller companies doubling and tripling, just like just like you saw this year. So the 2008 and 9 market action and, and some of the reasoning behind it seems to rhyme pretty, pretty strongly. However, I think that's where the similarity ends. And to your point, this time we have much higher inflation out the back end. And it looks to be something that, that could be sustainable, at least for you know, this next upcoming year. And when we talk to, to oil and gas companies, you know, they see their, their costs rising 10 to, 10 to 20% this next year. But the commodity price has enough room for them. And if the commodity price can keep up, then, then they should do just fine. I think the, the challenge for, for what they bring to other industries, which has investing implications, is, is not just on the oil side, but on the natural gas side, because that really feeds into everything that we spend money on in day-to-day life, whether it's heating our home or you know, the plastic in our cars or the clothes that we wear. Or the food that we eat, because most of our fertilizer comes from you know natural gas feedstock, and this is a big challenge. I think you know we're very fortunate in the U.S. to have very low gas prices relative to the rest of the world. But when you look overseas, you see natural gas prices, you know, in the 30s dollars per per MCF versus you know four dollars here in the U.S. So the rest of the world is facing a very very extreme input cost shock that looks very likely to linger through the next year and and possibly into 2023 that does pose you know a pretty big inflationary shock and and typically when you see that you know oil and gas has done well i mean if you go back to the 70s there's a clear case you know to be made that you know when you look at the 70s energy was one of the only only sectors that had you know positive real returns as as shocking as that is to think about i don't see the current situation as extreme as the 70s, but I do think that for at least a number of years here, we have some visible inflationary shocks. To think about how that would extend out multiple years really comes down to two key factors, but they're both related to one thing, which is supply of energy. That is OPEC. OPEC Plus now is very unified. If they can keep that sort of unification 
they should have an influence on the oil price and be able to keep it in that range we talked about earlier and also keep it in a range that would essentially ensure a decent profit level for energy regardless of the inflation environment, which would make it kind of a unique space to invest in that scenario. The other factor is the U.S. and the U.S. producers. We've had two years now of very low capital investment in oil and gas. We spent a little under $300 billion. This is globally, globally CapEx, $300 billion in 2020. We're a little over $300 billion this year and probably going to be that next year. That'll get you to three years of fairly low investment versus like a 400 to 600 billion, what you would consider a, a normal maintenance level to kind of keep things flat. So, so we're under investing in oil and gas. I think the world expects that to happen. If you look at a lot of the, what the big agencies are forecasting, you know, to hit net zero targets, we need to invest more at like a $350 billion oil and gas level. But the problem is we haven't yet really upped the investment on the renewable side to the degree that we need to, to compensate for that underinvestment on, on the oil and gas side. So to kind of sum that all up a bit more clearly, I'd say we just aren't investing enough in energy of any kind, given what demand's likely to do as we come out of COVID. And that's likely to support at least inflation in energy and in some of the inputs into fertilizers and plastics and some of those sorts of raw material input costs. So I do think we'll probably be facing a bit more energy price inflation than, than we've gotten used to in the 2010s. And the 2010s were kind of a very nice and calm time in hindsight, I think. Yeah, that, that's some incredibly helpful context. And I think we've got time for, for one more point. And I'd be remiss if I didn't address some of the potential headwinds to the energy sector, whether it's going to be increased regulation, EVs, expensive investments going to what you were just discussing. Maybe you can just touch on some of those headwinds and how that might impact your outlook. It's important if you're looking at energy investments to know there's always plenty of potential headwinds, as we've learned over the last decade and last hundred years, probably. I think near term, Near term, it's still COVID variants. You know, we've been reminded of that lately uh, with Omicron. And I think that's that's what we have to think about near term. You know, how, how does this play out on demand? I think very long term, one of the issues we have to think about is the OPEC cartel. It looks like it's gaining share and getting stronger. You know, that can always change, but that's something that will there'll be a big driving force in the marketplace on the supply side. And then on the demand side, there's just an enormous level of uncertainty. You know, we talked about EVs and we can talk more about those in just a second, but it's that uncertainty that makes it very hard for a boardroom or a management team or an investor to underwrite a long-term investment in any sort of energy project. You know, some of these some of these large projects have 20 or 30 year payback periods if you're building a, an LNG facility, for example. And it's very hard to do that when you just you just don't know if the demand is going to be there, if the policy is going to support that. It's a very, very trying time. And, you know, that that raises the cost of capital and all these sorts of things. It's hard to find funding for these projects. And then at the meantime, you're watching EVs and EVs are really starting to ramp as a percent of sales every year, especially in in some countries like China and parts of Europe. And that is a crucial unknown when we think about if we want to invest in, in some of these projects and companies. Absolutely. I think that that's some, some really important context to take away from all of this. And, and Eric, I think we're, we're out of time for our podcast today, but I want to thank you. This has been a really interesting conversation. It's a subject that is top of mind and I think will be going forward uh, for, for probably the, the better part of, of 2022. So I appreciate your time and uh, I've enjoyed this. And thank you very much to our listeners. And until next time, take care. 
Thanks for listening to Markets in Focus from Carillon Tower Advisors. Please find additional episodes and market insight at marketsinfocuspodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm Matt Orton. Podcasts are for informational purposes only. This channel is not monitored by Caroline Tower Advisors. Please visit marketsandfocuspodcast.com for additional disclosure. This material is a general communication being provided for information purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from Carillon Tower Advisors or any of its affiliates to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and you should not rely on it in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, you Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and make their own determinations together with their own professionals in those fields. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. Past performance does not guarantee or indicate future results. There is no guarantee that these investment strategies will work under all market conditions, and each investor should evaluate their ability to invest for the long term, especially during periods of downturn in the market. Investing involves risk and may incur a profit or loss. Investment returns and principal value will fluctuate so that an investor's portfolio, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against loss.